Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Since 1858, New York City's Central Park has served as a peaceful oasis for New Yorkers and visitors from around the world to enjoy the park's beautiful landscape, bridges, fountains, wildlife, sculptures, and more. However, have you ever wondered who and what previously occupied the 843 acres that is now this beautiful park? In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we will be speaking with Sarah Cedar Miller, historian emerita of the Central Park Conservancy and author of the book, Before Central Park. Sarah will take us back in history to tell us stories of the days prior to the formation of Central Park, when the land was the site of farms, businesses, wars, and a home to many different communities of people. Sarah will also give us insight into the wonderful work of the Central Park Conservancy. For over 40 years, the Conservancy's mission has been to preserve and celebrate Central Park as a sanctuary from the pace and pressures of city life, and to enhance the enjoyment and well-being of all. I'd now like to welcome Sarah Cedar-Miller to our show. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you as a guest, because first of all, for our listeners, uh, my wife Kelly and my daughter Jamie and I met Sarah at Central Park, and she gave us a mini tour down at the south end of the park, and she gave us some history, and it was a beautiful day, and the park is just outstanding. The work that's been done there, just the way it looks and the, the way that history has been accumulated and written about is amazing. So we are going to talk about your book, Before Central Park, but also you are the historian emerita of the Central Park Conservancy. So let's start by talking about what is the Central Park Conservancy? That's a great question, and I'm happy to answer. Well, we are a not-for-profit organization that was started in 1980 when the city was broke and private money and innovative institutions were being formed by New Yorkers who were fighting back against these budget cuts. The Parks Department was always the very first department to be cut, budget cut, because, you know, people just thought, didn't understand how important parks are to the life of the city. They thought, you know, there's firemen and policemen and teachers and, and sanitation, but parks, okay, not, not as important. But if you don't have good parks, you don't have a good city. And we've proven that. And people were fleeing the city for the suburbs in the 1970s because the whole city was falling apart. And a lot of not-for-profit organizations were formed, and we were one of them. Well, we're absolutely thrilled that you're actually doing that. I don't think I ever really knew about the Conservancy. So this is all, it's new information for me, and I'm sure for many listeners, but what a great word to get out there. Tell me, let me back up just a drop here, Sarah. Tell me about yourself. What's your background? How did you become interested in Central Park? 
and then ultimately how you got involved in the Conservancy. So um, I'm from Massachusetts, but my parents are from Brooklyn and all the relatives lived here, not there. So we were in New York a lot and I loved New York. And after college, I moved with all my friends downtown to the village. And I started, uh, you know, actually was a social worker at the time for the city of New York and um, going to school at night at Hunter College to get my master's degree in art history and loved art. That's the reason I moved to New York to look at art, study art, all about art, museums, galleries, contemporary. And later on, I also went and got a master's degree in photography because I decided not only did I want to study art, but I also wanted to make it. And so I graduated from Pratt Institute in 1983 with a master's MFA in you know photography. And um, through that network, I got a phone call from my friend Cynthia, who said, the Central Park Conservancy is looking for a photographer. And I thought, what's that? So, you know, it wasn't Google, there weren't computers. I went to the New York Times and just the month before they had their second fundraising luncheon. And I thought, okay, well, this sounds interesting, but Central Park is kind of creepy. But nonetheless, I called and they had me come for an interview. And I was just enchanted with the idea that there were people who were trying to save this park from the bad reputation, which I thought it had, and that I could be part of something much bigger than making art for myself. So that was the end of me for a very long time, being an artist. And um, I thought, well, you know, I was a child of the 60s who wanted to save the world. And I thought saving 843 acres of Manhattan Island wouldn't be a bad thing. And so I signed on and luckily I got the job and um, I've been there now in June will be 40 years. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, I remember the 70s very clearly. I remember the 60s as well. But I do remember the reputation of Central Park back then was, you mentioned scary. I used to think about people getting mugged and it wasn't safe and all that. And, you know, walking through Central Park last week, I mean, what a beautiful place. And just a, a sense of being out in the country, knowing that you're how far away from Times Square? <laughs> you're so close and it's so amazing. You did a lot of photography there. I've seen your work, just beautiful photography. But over the years, you had different roles. So you were photography, but then you were the official historian at some point as well? Yes, five years in, I became the historian, uh, which I was continuously till 2017 when I went part-time, but I'm still here. And the photography was everything from photographing documents, literally things on pieces of plans or or something on pieces of paper. There was no digital anything back in 1984. So I did that and uh, we had fundraising events and we had projects going on in the park. We needed to document the master plan. You do photographs for that, which came out in 1985. And publications and, you know, starting to have beautiful pictures of the park. That wasn't easy back in 1984. But 
four years of work that had gone into Central Park already, there were vast improvements from when I used to uh, walk through the park in the 70s. I documented all of that. And then as the historian, there were public programs, there was research that had to be done for all the upcoming projects. Uh, There were tours, there were uh, publications that needed uh, history. So the photography and the history fed each other, uh, informed me, and it was a lot to learn. I I was lost <laughs> the first few weeks. I couldn't, I had to have a map with me wherever I went. But um, I soon became, you know, very familiar with it. And we were very small at the time. And uh, of course, now we have, I think it's something like 375 employees, something on that idea. But there were, you know, maybe like 12 when I started. <laughs> wow, that, yeah, that you've really grown. Now, yeah. During your time at the park in the earlier days, and actually over the last, say, almost almost 40 years now, though, I understand you started getting a lot of questions from people on tours about what used to be where the park is now. And, and to be honest with you, that's one of my things as a person who loves history. I can go somewhere and just, it may not look at all like it did originally or in the past, but I like to think of what happened on this spot, what used to be here. That's something that makes me very interested. And I can imagine you've got a lot of people asking the same thing. Tell us about that and how that turned into this big, beautiful book called Before Central Park. (laughs) Can you tell us that story? Sure. Well, um, there's really two parts to it. One is that I started giving tours. Once I became the historian, I started reading everything. And um, we didn't have a tour program. We, um, you know, just didn't get that far yet. We were busy cleaning the park and restoring it and planting trees, not giving tours quite yet. But eventually we did. And I gave tours. And Often I would say right at the beginning, so before we begin, is there any question that you have? And sometimes it was two people, sometimes it was, you know, 25 or 30 people at a time. And the hands always went up and said, yes, what was this before it became a park? We knew a little bit. We knew there was was a blockhouse. You can't miss it. Uh, Well, you can miss it, actually. It's in the woods at 109th Street. But uh, most people don't know, to this day, don't even see it with the leaves on the trees. But, you know, we know that came from the War of 1812. There were a lot of clues. But we'd really, there was huge gaps. So that was one thing. And then in the summer of 1990, we were beginning to do work up at the north end of the park, uh, the Harlem Mirror and the Dana Center. And um, before it, because landmarks, the park is a historic landmark and a New York City scenic landmark, we had to, in order to do it, do a preliminary study for landmarks of the with an archaeologist. And so I was assigned as photographer to spend the days with the archaeologists uh, and cultural geographers, also what they call themselves, and uh, study the north end of the park. And it was phenomenal what I learned at that time. And it, it was all new to me. 
And particularly, there was one moment, which is actually the preface to the book, in which Richard Hunter, who is the archaeologist, a wonderful, brilliant man, and we're standing at the North Meadow Center, basically about 100th Street, and he says, you know, there was a kitchen here, a house and a kitchen, and the um, people would have probably thrown their broken plates out the window. They didn't have, you know, sanitation collection at the time. And he said, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something right around here without taking even one step. He bent down, picked up a two inch piece of crockery embedded in the grass. And I said, you planted that. (laughs) No, I didn't. And of course, there were other people there and we were all saying the same thing. But um, holding that shard in my hand and thinking that it's all right here and what was here. And so that became a touchstone to me wanting to discover more. And so I started doing research. And in 2015 is when I actually committed myself to trying to write a book. Well, I'm so glad you did. First of all, I want to say that I envy you that you're assigned to follow the archaeologist around Central Park. I mean, that to me would be like such a fun thing to do. I can't imagine. Uh, And then even finding somebody's garbage from maybe the 17th century is just so interesting. And it makes your imagination start to go kind of crazy as to what was here. But you really had to buckle down. And I could tell by the thorough writing that you did that it's well-documented, well-researched material. Where did you go to get all this information that you uh, needed for this book? Well, um, it's scattered, but I have to say that New York City has some of the best repositories of its history. It is an easy, perfect place to do history of your environment of the city because they kept it all. And its um, municipal archives, of course, was a major factor. The courts have documents. The New York Historical Society, the New York Public Library, the State Library up in Albany, all of it, you know, little tiny um, museums or libraries that um, most people never heard of. I hadn't heard of um, the General Mechanics and Tradesmen Library on 44th Street, like whoever heard of it. But in fact, um, someone who owned land in the park's father actually was a founder of it. So. I knew nothing about New York City history much at all. And I had to learn so much in order to make sense of it. But the archives are there and it's low-hanging fruit for anybody who wants to do research in New York City. It's it's all there and lots online, of course, too. Yeah, we are fortunate now with online that there's an extra boost that we get, but certainly you had to do the real boots on the ground work and and get to uh, to look at some of these original documents. And, you know, reading through the book and speaking with you last week, there's a few areas of the book that I just wanted, to, if we could just touch on them for our listeners. Let's talk about the, at the south end of the park, when we stood there speaking with you, I pointed to an area and said, so how far back can we go? And what was originally here? And you talked about the 
I think it was the Lenape Indians, Lenape tribe, that they had interaction with the park itself, what is now the park, but they didn't actually live there. Can you tell that story? Of course, I'd love to. So in order to tell the story, we really have to go back to why was New Amsterdam founded, which is, of course, what New York was during the Dutch era. So one of the biggest resources that Manhattan Island or the whole area had were beavers. And beavers are to this day on the seal of the city of New York. You can actually see these two little beavers. Mm -hmm. And they are so important to the founding of the city because the Dutch, if you look at any of those Rembrandt paintings, they're all wearing beaver hats and beaver fur. It was waterproof. It was warm and supple. And they had totally eradicated beavers in Europe. And their supply in Russia was also dwindling. When the French discovered beavers in Canada, word got out in Europe that there were beavers in North America, and the Dutch immediately started coming and took the land. Um, you know, originally it was just an outpost in order to get the furs and the timber. That was also important because they didn't have large timber anymore in Europe. And so they came and the hunters were the native people. Uh, the Dutch didn't go out and kill beavers. They traded European made goods, iron, kitchen equipment, kettles, pots, guns, alcohol, you know, for beaver and beaver pelts became actually currency. Like you could buy a piece of land for three beaver pelts. I mean, it, it was that valuable. But most of it, of course, went off to Europe. But it was the native people who would have come to the area. Beavers only live in watery landscapes when they build their dams. And the park, like most of Manhattan, was extremely watery with lots of natural springs and streams throughout the island. And the part that became Central Park also, like the pond that we were at last week, uh, that was originally called Devore's a Dutch name, Divorce Stream, and it would have been a, a perfect place for beavers to have their dams. And so the Lenape came through it, never settled here in the winter for their winter habitat because it wasn't the right topography. The wind was wrong and certain kinds of um, topographic elements that we were missing. But they also, up at the north end, the native people had created a trail from all the way from the Bronx down through Manhattan and into a break in the rock at 106th Street. That became known as the Wisquasjik Trail. And that trail became a Dutch wagon road and later became the English Kingsbridge Road. I love that. I'm going to stop you right there because you were telling me a story and it was it's also in the book as well that I guess there, if something happened, I don't know whether they were doing excavation or what have you, but it actually exposed some of the old Kingsbridge Road. That was recently, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in 2013. A tree fell down. The tree roots were pretty shallow. And 18 inches below the ground, it exposed the original Kingsbridge Road. And there were small cobbles 
a little hand-pressed stone into the soil and big plates that actually exposed the footings for a gatehouse from the War of 1812 at the exact spot, you know, where the road was. And of course, this road was 13 miles long, went from the tip of both ends of Manhattan, and um, it was, you know, backbreaking labor. But apparently we had, according to the archaeologist, a backhoe uh, truck with a scooper, and it was trying to hit the um, road and see how compacted it was. And it, it was so hard, it bounced right up which means that years and years and years, decades and millennia of compaction had actually happened on the road. But we had no idea that there was any original road left on the island. So it was an animal trail. Then the Lenape used it as a trail for hunting. And then the Dutch used it as a road. And then the English, when they came into New York, they made it a road as well. So that's a lot of traffic. Yeah, and the road was still existing in the 1860s while they were building the park. But um, they covered it up, so you can't see it today. But you know it's there. It's there. (laughs) It's still there. (laughs) We have the photos. (laughs) So you mentioned about the Dutch. From what I think I saw that the Dutch were more in the northern part where their settlement was in the more northern part of the park. Is there anything you can tell us about that area of the park, what was going on, say, when the 17th century, when the Dutch, when it was New Amsterdam? Mm-hmm. Well, the north end of the park has a topography, particularly just at 106th Street North, that is unique to Manhattan Island. There is no other place with this topography a combination of a creek coming up through the East River all the way to what is now the Harlemere, which is the lowest topographic point in the park. It is only five feet above sea level. And then you have Harlem. It's right at the edge, southern edge of Harlem. And Harlem, the central Harlem up to 124th Street, is flat. And it was an agricultural field by the native people who mainly grew their, you know, corn, bean and squash crops, the three sisters crops and hunted their low lying bushes. They would introduce fire to encourage nitrogen into the soil. And so it was already agricultural. And then along come the Montaigne and DeForest family. And they want a tobacco bowery, bowery meaning farm in Dutch. And of course, the logical place to go is up at the north of what became the north end of Central Park, because Harlem is as flat as as can be. It had this perfect 200 acre farmland and they built their tobacco bowery and lived on what we assume is the edge of it, about 109th Street right near the trail, which became the road, and the creek where you could go down, bring your tobacco down this navigable creek, which is between 107th and 108th Street, all the way to the East River, where you could take your crop by boat down to the port of New York at the tip of the island. And so they settled there, and their first year they had a big crop, 
right away in 1638. So, Sarah, we know New Amsterdam came under control of the English in 1664, and that's when they renamed it New York. But in the 18th century, a name pops up, James Amory. Can you tell us who James Amory was and what his part was in Central Park's history? Yeah, it's a fun story. So when the English came, they saw that much of the island, particularly above 34th Street to about the 90s, was uninhabitable. It was rocky, swampy, hills, valleys, tons of, you know, Manhattan schist outcrops, which, of course, you still see throughout the park today. And they thought, well, this is useless land. We're never going to get investors. You can't use it for a farm the way the North End, like the Montaigne de Forest family had. The West Side, particularly what would be at this point, 7th to 8th Avenue, that was all taken for investment purposes. That must have been better land to cultivate arable land. But not most of the park's land. So the um, royal governor gave it to the city of New York and it was known as the common land. After the Revolutionary War in the 1790s, uh, you know, by 1783 is when the war ends. By the 90s, the city is bankrupt. It has no taxable purposes. The only asset it has in order to be able to rebuild the city from the seven-year British occupation was to sell the only asset it had, and that was the common land. And so James Amory buys this land because it turns out that there's an epidemic, uh, yellow fever, from every fall from 1793 till about 1805. And his family gets sick. He stays in town. A lot of people leave town because they know you know, they're gonna, they don't know how the disease is transmitted, but they know it comes in the fall. He stayed. He didn't get sick, but all of his wife and children got sick. And the next year he said, I've got to get out of here. And he bought land up in the, the common land. It was divided into five acre lots. It was actually the, the city's first grid before the grid we know today. There was actually a grid in 1796. They were divided into five acre lots and uh, owned by the city, but purchased, you know, from the city or leased from the city. The city didn't sell everything. They half of it was for sale. Half of it was for lease. And so James Amory started buying land, leasing land and and buying out his neighbors. So we had the biggest land in the park, which today is some of the most iconic um, landmarks in the park. Bethesda Terrace, the mall, part of Sheep Meadow, the East Green on the east side in the 60s. So he owned a great deal of land and he was also not a, he wasn't a farmer. He became a farmer, but he was actually a famous whip maker, horse whips of horse whips. His father was in the business before him and he and his father worked together. And it turns out through my research, I wanted to, so if Amory horsewhips were so famous and so fabulous, I saw tons of advertisements in old newspapers about these famous Amory horsewhips. I wanted to see one. Googled like crazy, Amory horsewhip, nothing, nothing. 
came up. I every now and then I'd try and I could find nothing. And one day I said, okay, what's another word for horsewhip? I can't change the name Amory, so I'll try to find it another way. And I thought a riding crop. I know nothing about horses, but I know there's such a thing as a riding crop, which turns out to be a cropped whip. And so I Google that and up comes this gorgeous photograph of a, a whip and a horse whip with the silver handle with the name Amory right on it. And it looks, it's a beautifully made object. And on the, the handle itself are the initials GW. And it turns out that it is George Washington, who was the famous owner of the Amory horse whip. And it is the pride of the Mount Vernon collection. Oh, and George wow. Washington... George Washington was the most famous equestrian in America. You must have really been thrilled with that find, huh? weren't you? Oh, that was one of my favorite finds of <laughs> in the whole book research. I mean, you just don't get better than that. And I've spoken to the people at Mount Vernon, and they said, well, Washington bought almost all of his equestrian equipment in Europe. You know, we didn't have a good equestrian equipment, but they, they did not know. It was from New York. And so it was obviously good enough for George Washington. Well, that's the best. So Amory owned a lot of what's now Central Park, and he, he held on to that land. And I, I just want to, I'm trying to go a little bit chronologically if I can. Hopefully I'm accurate here, but you mentioned a war of 1812. So Amory has bought up a lot of lots of land in the 1790s. The War of 1812 comes along. We're at war with Britain. And you mentioned a blockhouse. I think it's around 109th Street. How did the blockhouse play a part in the War of 1812? Well, when I was talking about the topography of the north end of the park, at 106th Street, there is a wall or 7th Street, a wall of rock that crosses the park east to west. So there's a break in the rock where you could put a road. And that's what the animals did. And then the native people followed the animals, et cetera. And so this was by the 18th century, the most militarily strategic spot in Manhattan Island, because if you could hold, this is the only road in and out of town. And if you could hold this spot, you would be able to stop an army. And that's just what the, British did during the Revolutionary War when we had 10,000 troops in Central Park, camping in Central Park. But then during the War of 1812, when it's us against the British, they built fortifications in 1814, actually, because that's when Stonington, Connecticut, only a heartbeat away uh, on Long Island Sound, was attacked by the British. And then in the South, the British had burned down Washington in the capital. So the New Yorkers saw, saw the problem coming to New York, and they put up these fortifications built by volunteers, all kinds of citizens, not just the um, military. And uh, the one that's left is the blockhouse from 1814. It never really saw any action. Later, it was used as a powder house, which means a, a place to store gunpowder. And um, yet, you know, it's our ruin. 
Olmsted had when he built the, and designed the park. They made it covered with vines, and it was kind of like a romantic 19th century ruin. We have we are always making sure that it is safe and it's in the woods, and we'll be at some point in our future restoring the woods and trying to um, you know make sure the blockhouse is visitable. Right now, it's pretty close to the public. Well, I think it's wonderful that it wasn't torn down either by Olmsted or by city or what have you, because future generations can enjoy the history and what was this and look it up and learn about it. So so there was uh, something that you mentioned to me, and it's in your book, about Seneca Village as being an important part of the history of Central Park. Could you tell us about Seneca Village? Certainly, I'd be happy to. It's a very important part of our pre-park history. Seneca Village, which let me locate it for everyone, was between what would be West 83rd Street to West 89th Street. And if you could imagine the park being divided into 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th now, Central Park West, it would be between 7th Avenue and Central Park West today, not actually all the way to 8th Avenue or Central Park West, and um, more along the 7th Avenue side. It was a community of about 200 people, most of whom were African Americans. And what is important about it is that it was the largest and most stable property-owning community of, of Black people in this country from 1825 until they began building the park in 1857, which is when they had to leave. Was there anything archaeologically that has been discovered in that area? Yes, we have uh, um, archaeologists who have had digs, uh, particularly in one location, uh, the Wilson House, and they brought up a lot of crockery, toothbrush, comb, uh, cooking pot, and a child shoe, many other things. They're in a repository downtown. But um, what uh, the archaeologists, and then my research also proves, more or less, is that it was a middle-class community of uh, people who owned the land, not necessarily those who rented, but certainly the people who lived there. They were, you know, you had, it was $40 to buy a lot of land. There were 200 lots in Seneca Village. And $40 was a lot of money at the time. We're talking, you know, the 1820s and 30s. And a man named John Whitehead, who was a white cart man, he sold it to the Black community, and I believe in tandem with the Black community. We don't have proof, but he bought it in 1824 and immediately had it divided into 200 lots and then sold it immediately. He never lived there. He lived down on what it was now Avenue D. And he was an, an original thinker, an unusual guy. He was part of the universalist religion. So my feeling is he was a radical thinker at the time and did communicate with the Black community in some way. And, um, you know, he sold the lots at a, a fair market value. He wasn't poor. He was quite well-to-do, lived on Orchard Street. And anyway, one of the first buyers were from the AME Zion Church. 
and then the church bought two lots for burial grounds. And then people started coming. About half the population owned land but never lived there. But many of them rented to Black people. And so it wasn't until the mid to late 1840s that renters were Irish and Germans. But it was a vibrant community with three churches, a a school, gardens, people had gardens, and all different kinds of houses from the very poorest to three-story houses with basements and porticos. And, you know, it was, uh, unfortunately, we have no photographs of the community, but it was described as a neat community, a neat settlement in the newspapers. And It was a way for the community to get away from the rampant racism and danger and health conditions of lower Manhattan and have a community that was their own. And of course, a big part of this was that in the 1821 Constitutional Convention of New York State, they decided that all white men, whether they own property or not, could vote. But if you were Black, you had to own at least $250 value of property. And so that excluded most people, except for the middle-class people who could put down $40 to John Whitehead for a piece of property. But that didn't encourage you to immediately vote. You had to work your way up to $250. So then a lot of people saved. Then they built a home. Many people moved in increase their home and increase their value because the land values in Manhattan kept increasing every year. And um, particularly in the 1830 to 1836, when a lot of um, Black landowners actually sold their land, often to other Black landowners, but it was the height of the real estate boom. And Black people, just like the white people in the city, were, you know, cashing in on the wave of a real estate market. And so, um, you know, it was a thriving community and an opportunity for investment. And some of the people who never lived there, but who were landowners, were keeping it as an investment. And also, what's interesting is uh, several of the people were active in the Underground Railroad and active Black activists for civil rights. And they owned land in Seneca Village, too, which if the park hadn't come along, possibly they would have had underground uh, railroad stops there, but we can't prove that they were. But it it is a rich history. And, you know, sadly, even though they received adequate compensation for their land, as did most people within the park, the people at Seneca Village never reconvened in another community. Yeah. My, when you said rich history, that's what I was thinking in my head. It's really rich history. And to be able to go and stand there and and picture all that was going on there in the community and the people and their daily lives and what they did. And it is so interesting. And how did the idea of the park come into play and how were people compensated for their land? Okay. So we'll start with how, how did the park come into being? So in 1811 is when we inherited the grid plan that we have now. And there were almost no parks. There was, you know, City Hall Park, which we all know is not very big. It was the biggest park in the city at the time. It was Battery Park. There was, you know, Manhattan Square, 
all of them were very small postage stamps because they felt that New York City, people who wanted to see nature, would gravitate to the island shores. We have beautiful, you know, rivers and and cool breezes in the summer, and we didn't need parks. But the shipping industry said, oh, no, the edge of Manhattan Island, that's where the biggest port and that's business that we need that for business. So if you want to park, go look inside the island. And that's just what they did. And so by the 1850s, people looked around and there was one spot on the east side called Joneswood, which had belonged to the Jones family, the um, keeping up with the Joneses, Joneses, uh-huh. and including Edith Wharton's family. She was a Jones and they wanted to take their land. And of course, that family was like, no, and they had beautiful trees and it was 150 acres and it was on the East River, kind of where the um, hospitals are today. But uh, then they were also building a reservoir. Originally, the Great Lawn in Central Park was a reservoir long before the park was a concept in 1832. Right next to Seneca Village was the uh, receiving reservoir. And so that opened in 1842. And then New Yorkers, you know, abused their privileges of water and they realized they needed another reservoir, which is the why they were going to build one right behind it. The reservoir, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Reservoir, we have today. And they were built in this rocky, swampy land owned by the city. And so the head of the Croton Aqueduct Board and another uh, alderman said, look, You have all this rocky, swampy land. It's cheap. It's much bigger than Joneswood. It's central to the island. And no one is ever going to want to live anywhere near the reservoirs, which, of course, is such valuable real estate today. And so why don't you take this for a park? And so long story short, the state of New York had to take it, not the city. It's the state that had the power. And so in 1853, They took the land and said it was probably after um, it was assessed was only going to cost 1.5 million. So then they had an assessment by these surveyors before two years, four surveyors, two years. And they came up with the fact that it was because the land had grown so valuable in those two years that it was going to cost five million dollars. And they said, what? You promised us 1.5 million, forget it, no park. That's how close we came to not being a park. And so later they decided to take, they did decide to take it from 59th to 106th Street. And then later they bought for 1.3 million, they bought the land from 106th Street to 110th, only four blocks, but it had quadrupled in price. And um, altogether, it cost almost $7 million to buy the land for Central Park. Four years later, they bought all of Alaska for the same $7 million. So Central Park's 843 acres, and Alaska is 110 million acres, same price. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, thank heavens that they did buy the land for Central Park. Can you imagine? I mean, it would have been gobbled up. It'd be more more skyscrapers. It just wouldn't be New York. No, I mean, it defines New York in a sense, Central Park. When you think of Manhattan, you think of that green rectangle. It's in embedded in your brain. 
You do. You do. Now, and Sarah, so people were paid a fair price for their land? It turns out we did find the documents and they received just compensation in the Constitution. Uh, Article 5, it says that a public entity can take private land if for its needs if the owners receive just compensation. Those are the words, which means fair market value. And I've done enough research to see that, in fact, that it was uh, the land. You know, that's why it went from 1.3 million to 1.5 million to 5 million was because the land had become so valuable. And so people were receiving just compensation, fair market value in 1856. And in, um, they got to stay there for another year, essentially as tenants of the city of New York. No one owned the land at that point. All the landowners had been bought out in 1856. And the people who stayed were tenants of the city of New York. And then when the city got the money to start construction from uh, the state, then everyone had to leave. So approximately 900 people who were living in the park, none of them were landowners at that point. And they all had to leave in October of 1857. And that's when the park really officially was Central Park. Yeah. And then... Um in 1858, they held a design competition. And that's what most people know. That's the beginning of Olmsted and Vox winning the design competition. And, um, you know, the rest is the park's history. So now the park is open. You and I, when we were speaking last week, uh, we talked about the most important legacy of Central Park being a really an, an example of democracy in action. Can you tell us more about that? Well, at the time, in, in the 1840s, New York received the largest uh, wave of immigration that they had ever had. Not everyone stayed in New York, but many did. The Irish were coming because of the famine, and uh, the German were coming from political unrest. And the first time the foreign-born population was larger than the native-born population. And it created tremendous social unrest, tremendous divides between economic, social, um, religious divides. Uh, there was tension, there were riots, and a lot of social reformers felt that one way to ameliorate and cool down the temperature was to have a beautiful place for people to go. Everyone loves nature. If everyone comes to a beautiful park, they will be able to understand that we're all the same. We all love our families. We all do this, enjoy smelling flowers and looking at beautiful trees. And then, of course, it's the business community that wanted New York to become the center, uh, commercial center of the world. But they knew that in order to be a great city like London and Paris, what defined it even before municipalities of um, libraries, universities, museums, you needed a great park. And so between the social reformers and the business community, everyone knew that the park needed to bring people together and bring New York into, you know, the world-class park that it is a city that it is today. And so people started coming to the park. They never thought they would get along. 
But Olmsted and Vox did something absolutely brilliant because they knew that the rich people didn't want to mix with the poor people. And so they would stay on the drives with their horses or the carriages. And so what Olmsted and Vox did was make the most beautiful parts of Central Park only for pedestrians. So if you wanted to go down the mall, see Bethesda Terrace, if you wanted to go into the woodlands and see waterfalls and experience all the beautiful views that you would get, you would have to get off your horse and out of your carriage and mix with the rest of the people. And that is inherent in the design. We take it for granted. We don't even know about how this was a subtle way of making people appreciate each other and mix. But that was a radical um, concept in the uh, mid-19th century. And so inherent in the design, it's a democratic design. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And that legacy is really there today in Central Park. And it's beautiful. And it's a place where everybody can come and enjoy themselves. That brings us back to the Conservancy. So the Conservancy is putting its heart and soul in keeping Central Park a beautiful place, making people aware of it, keeping its history alive. How can people find out more about what the Conservancy does and is planning to do? And how can people get involved and contribute in some way? Okay, well, there are many ways. First, we have a website. The Central Park Conservancy uh, is www.centralparknyc.org. You have to remember the NYC because there is a centralpark.org. That is not us. But when you Google Central Park, up comes, we're first. So up comes our website, the official website of the city of New York, uh, of Central Park for the city of New York. And there's a donate and we would love it. And there's also the information, history, blooms, what's in bloom, you know, everything you need to know or contact us if you have a question. We have wonderful programs. We have visitor centers that are gift shops. So you can, you know, if you just buy something wonderful, like a a mug or a t-shirt or, you know, we we have beautiful gifts for all ages and all occasions. You're helping Central Park right there. So you can donate. You can also take a tour. We have very great tours and of all parts of the park with all different themes. And I believe some are online. And so you can even listen. If you buy Seeing Central Park, which is the official guidebook, I happen to be the author and the photographer, but why not push that? Because you can use it as a self-guided tour and go around the park um, yourself and have a beautiful book as a, a memento. What's important, if you really are a New Yorker and you would like to volunteer, we have a volunteer office to sign up and and see if you qualify to be a volunteer. And uh, we couldn't do the park without our volunteers. They are a major part of our mission. Also, if you go have a picnic or 
have some trash that you brought in your lunch, we ask you to pack it in and pack it out. Because if we don't fill up the garbage cans, that saves time, energy of our staff, and they can prune trees rather than pick up garbage. If you walk a dog, please keep it on a leash between the hours of 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. So if you heed the rules, you walk on the paths uh, where we tell you not to go, don't go, then you're helping the park just by being there and heeding the rules. Wow. Fantastic. Well, I highly recommend everybody check out your website, which we will post in our show notes. And Sarah Cedar Miller's book, Before Central Park, a beautiful book. So check out the website, how you can get involved, how you can donate, and certainly enjoy Sarah's book because it just opened up a whole new chapter of history for me. And I want to thank you, Sarah, for meeting with us and giving us a little tour and for spending time speaking to us on your history, your story, and really sharing with our listeners the rich history of Central Park. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, it's open to everyone since its beginning in 1858. And uh, we welcome people and just hope they also, if they love it, it's giving season and the Central Park Conservancy would absolutely love it if you care about the park, particularly if you use the park or know someone who does use the park. It's a wonderful gift to give a donation to the Central Park Conservancy. Absolutely. And thank you again, Sarah. And I hope you have a very nice holiday season. Thank you. Thank you, James. Okay. Have a great evening. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.